They are extrajudicial, and many of them are lifelong. That was Maria Santelli, and you're listening to Choose Life, a board war podcast for peace. Choose life that we might be. Choose peace that we might see our tomorrow. Let justice roll like a river, flow like a river down. Thank you for joining us for this episode. My name is Thad Crouch, and this episode is going to be focused on creating a culture of conscience, particularly around ending the draft registration. I'm so excited to have my friends Maria Centelli and Bill Gavin from the Center on Conscience and War. Maria is their executive director in Washington, D.C., and she started uh, years ago working on issues of nuclear weapons, nuclear waste, nuclear research in her home state of New Mexico in Albuquerque, where she also uh, founded a GI rights hotline to help troops uh, struggling with their rights and with conscience around the American war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And she actually got her training in that from Bill Gavin, who at the Center of Conscience and War is their counseling coordinator. And that means Bill not only counsels conscientious objector applicants, he trains and coordinates other counselors. And he himself actually was a conscientious objector to the military draft in uh, the era of the American War in Vietnam. Uh, He uh, went into the seminary uh, with the Presbyterian denomination to uh, become ordained and found his calling actually in helping people with their conscience with violence and war. He's been doing that ever since, and we're so glad. He's helped so many people. Uh, And So Maria is going to be talking to us about some actions we could take and why we should take them with a particular government commission before the end of this year, which is in a couple days. And Bill, I'm going to ask Bill to start off by telling us about a a short kind of summarized background uh, of of how this opportunity uh, came to be in which we could end the draft registration. Bill? Well, I mean, you may recall that back when Obama was president, he ended what was called the combat exclusion for women, which basically opened up all jobs to women in the military. And uh, there had been a court case challenging the draft registration of males only as a discrimination back in the early 80s when the registration first started. And... The Supreme Court at that point said that since the purpose of draft registration is to have a pool of combat troops that could be available for combat, uh, and and since women are excluded from combat positions, and since the Constitution gives Congress the power to raise and maintain an army, that it's not unconstitutional that they've decided to exclude women from the draft registration. Uh, that kind of became moot once, uh, once Obama opened up the combat exclusion. And so that reopened this conversation about, well, shouldn't women be drafted? And there were people in Congress who did want to uh, extend the draft to women. But there were other people in Congress who were saying, this has been around for, what, 30-some years or now, now, and we haven't used it? And why are we spending $25 million a year to maintain this you know, agency that we have no use for, really. And so 
So basically what happened was when they were discussing the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act for 2017, um, in the, what happens in Congress is people attach amendments to this bill because it's got to pass. Sure. And so, uh, so in the Senate, the bill that passed actually included that women would be required to register. And uh, the version that passed in the House called for the Pentagon to do a study of what would be the combat effectiveness of including women in the registration. Also, what would be the combat you know, effect of uh, ending the draft registration. And, and so it went to conference committee, and the conference committee decided to create this commission. So what, what ultimately passed was the establishment of this commission on national public and community service or something like that, and um, or military service. And, and its job was to look at, well, first of all, to look at selective service, specifically with those two things in mind. You know, should women be included? Should we end it entirely? Or should we make other changes? Um, and that was a specific part of their mandate, but also just to look at other ways to get uh, the public and people involved in service. And so they've got a, you know, they had a three-year lifespan. They've been doing, they've been having meetings and hearings over the last couple of years. They are scheduled to make a report to Congress in March, this coming March. And they are receiving public comments until the end of this year. Uh, the, the deadline is uh, December 31st. So, so we have uh, certainly, we've gone to all, as many of their public meetings as we could and spoken at most, almost all of them that we were at. Uh, we have uh, encouraged our supporters to uh, write letters and make comments or go to those meetings when they could. And we are still encouraging people to, uh, to write to the commission uh, to, I mean, we would hope they would call, you know, they would urge the commission to say, let's end this registration once and for all. And we've been working together with a, a coalition of groups that includes, uh, wow, there's a whole lot of folks, the Resisters.org, uh, the War Resisters League, National Lawyers Guild. I mean, I don't know, Maria, what other groups? There's, there's a bunch. Courage to resist. Courage to resist. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. And this is exciting. What started out as a possible expansion of draft registration and expansion of violating freedom of conscience and freedom of religion uh, to include women in select service is actually turning out to be an opportunity to expand a culture of conscience and end the draft registration and selective service. Now, Maria and Bill, I really want to know what kind of points are you making uh, when you attend these public hearings with the commission and what, what would you like us to say when we contact them? Yeah, so we're saying, first and foremost, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's silliness to extend this to women. Just end it for all. End draft registration once and for all. That's kind of the, the motto here. End draft registration once, once and for all. It's a failed system. Uh, over two-thirds, more than two-thirds of the individuals who register, as we know currently only men are, are required to register, but more than two-thirds of them do not register willfully. They register because they're coerced through other programs. This is a federal 
um, criminal violation if you fail to register or you fail to register mm -hmm. timely, yet no one is prosecuted. And instead, what the federal government and individual state governments uh, only six states do not have punitive laws with respect to selective service. So most states and the federal government punish people who fail to register. Regardless uh, with, of their conscience or their That's faith. right. There is no due process. The punishment is automatic without due process. If this law is so important to the federal government, then they should enforce it. There's no enforcement mechanism. We understand selective service turns over about 100,000 names to the Department of Justice every year. And the Department of Justice has not prosecuted anyone for failure to register since 1986. Now that doesn't mean that, that, that people are not violating the law. They certainly are. And then they're living with these consequences. So this very much could be uh, an issue of religious freedom and freedom of religion and belief for people, you know, for whom it is a violation of their conscience to participate even in that way. And right. there's no and, e and even if they have no religion at all, if it violates their That's conscience. right. Freedom of religion and belief. We have, that's, right. that's, you know, that's, that's the issue here because anyone can be a conscientious objector. You don't have to be religious. And so, um, you know, so this is, this is definitely, you know, something that is um, extrajudicial and unconstitutional. These punishments are lifelong and burden people for the rest of their lives. So, and there's no plan for enforcement that we can see. We've not seen any, any plan for enforcement. It's just these extrajudicial penalties that get levied on people without their, without their day in court. So right. Right. If, if the government doesn't care to uh, enforce their laws through constitutional channels, then the law shouldn't exist. Yes, it shouldn't exist. And here's another argument I want to make. If you're someone who is uh, fiscally conservative, uh, they're only getting 100,000 names a year. That doesn't sound like very much at all. It sounds like they're not using their money effectively. And Edward Snowden has proven that the government has easier ways of getting these names. Oh, there's no question. Well, let me just <laughs> Let me just clarify. No, no, millions of, of men are registered every year. I want to clarify that the Department of Justice receives a, na a list of about 100,000 every year. Oh, oh, got it. Failed to register. The selected failed service to register. Of, okay. Right, they're in violation of the law, but the Department of Justice doesn't prosecute them. They're just saddled with these other penalties for the rest of their lives, which includes, you know, a bar from access to uh, student financial aid, mm -hmm. a bar from access to driver's licenses and state. Yes, exactly. In the early 2000s, I was I was in the Texas State House of Representatives when a bill was put forth requiring automatic registration into selective service for any 16-year-old boy getting a driver's license with no way to get it otherwise. And that entire chamber was steeped in an uncritical support of militarism, which is one of the most pervading culturally acceptable normative evils and injustices of our age. There were only two representatives opposing this, and it didn't matter. Even though Texas has really great laws about protecting personal and religious freedom, it just really didn't matter. No, there's no question. I mean, this is predicated on a notion that um, militarism is an acceptable um, foreign policy tool. 
and and military planners. You know, some people might argue, and you hear this in the peace community as well, arguing for the draft because they think that it's an anti-war position. They think that that a draft encourages anti-war activity because more people have what they call quote you know skin in the game. Actually, we know that's certainly not true. I'm going to borrow from Bill here. We had an active draft from 1948 to 1973. What wars did it prevent? You know, so. Right. And in fact, military planners testified at these hearings in the spring that they make their war plans based on the notion that they have a pool of people they can call on. So, it, and they said it shows resolve to our enemies that we have a, a draft registration process. But so, so you asked us what are the things we're asking people to comment on. So, number one, repeal it. And to your point, Thad, that you just mentioned, it is a the the list is stale. Uh, even when you register. Uh, whether willfully or coerced through these other government programs, um, you're supposed to then keep selective service, you know, apprised of your location as you move around. Who does that? How many of those kids who registered at the age of 18 still live at that address? How many have gone off to college? How many have gotten, you know, permanent jobs somewhere in another community between the age of 18 and the age of 26? So the list is, is stale. There's been audits of the list done in past decades that show that it's a very ineffective list. So the actual, so using that list in an actual draft would be, uh, pretty futile. And the former director of Selective Service actually testified at these hearings to exactly that, that we can must, if we need a list, we can muster up a list more effectively, you know, extemporaneously than this stored list, um, than the usefulness of the stored list. So now that I understand that correctly, let me make the argument for anyone out there who's fiscally conservative, even if they love the draft. This is a bloated, wasteful government expenditure. And as far as we have to prove that we have resolve to use our military any idiot with a history book knows that <laughs> good point so our second point that we're asking people so number one end draft registration once and for all our second point overturn the federal and state penalties yes lift, lift them on the people who are living under them already having had no due process to defend themselves lift them and end them end them at the federal level and preemptively end the you know have the federal government preemptively end any state's penalties that may be in existence at this time because as yes. we talk about, they are extra judicial they have been living without the process and many of them are lifelong that that is you know contrary to the to the founding reasons and the and the and the bill of rights uh for this country, I, it's it blows me away that it's been a while since I thought about that. This is extrajudicial. There is no. It is. Probably, well, like, you 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 don't you don't want to apply for selective service in Texas. You can't have a driver's license. There's, there's no appeal to that. I'm curious. Are you aware of any cases in which someone? Um, Oh, maybe those police sirens I hear in the background are someone who uh, didn't sign up for selective service. No, uh, are you guys aware of any of any cases being done at at state levels uh, with with these laws? 
like, no. like, like an ACLU or, or anybody. We need a plaintiff, to, you know? Um, of course, of course. Yeah, I mean, there, there are people who would love to take this on. The last time it was adjudicated um, was at a, it was in the 1980s, and it was at a time when the people who failed to register were still young enough to register. So the judge basically said there's no harm here. Yeah, that was, yeah, the Supreme Court. They basically said, yeah, you just go out and register and you get these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can have your benefits restored if you just register. So they were under the age of 26. There hasn't been a case brought now since, you know, a person is over the age of 26 because Selective Service will only take your registration until the age of 26. At that point, you're you're done for. And this also affects people's pathway to citizenship, which is very, very important. Mm-hmm. You know, this could, you know, this could restrict someone from being able to naturalize um, here because it's important to note that even residents here, anyone who is here, even if you're other Otherwise undocumented, you are required by the law to register. Wow! And and can we name some of the other other things we've mentioned? The driver's license, citizenship. I know. Um, I think in some places college registration for certainly uh, student loans. Um, you can link to our website too under conscientious okay. objection and selective service. We have um, a whole breakdown. We have a whole grid of all the state by state laws with the links to the to the law and when it was enacted. But yes, driver's license licenses, state IDs, um, access, you know, entrance into state university, you know, state um, educational institutions, state financial aid, federal student financial aid, federal jobs, and uh, what else? Many, some states say you have to be registered to get a job with the state. So what happens if a man immigrates to the United States as a legal resident, non-citizen, at the age of 23, doesn't know he's supposed to do this, and uh, wants to become a citizen, and he's 27 years old, and wants to get a, a state job at a state that requires his registration? What happens to that guy? The, the, reg, okay, the law actually says, unless... I mean, you're required to register unless there are circumstances beyond your control that prevent you from registering. And and so in the case of, say, an, an immigrant, especially somebody who might have come here at the age of 25, you know, they probably have no idea they're supposed to register. Okay, so, so they could get to be too old and they could make the case but it would have to be made on an individual basis, you know, that okay, I okay. had no intention to violate the law, uh, you know, and, and then the agency that's administering the benefit can make that decision. Uh, and, and you can actually write to Selective Service for what they call a status letter, you know, that Selective Service will uh, either verify that you are registered or that you are not registered. And in some cases, Selective Service has been known to actually write a letter saying, you know, given the circumstances, we believe that the person did not, you know, intentionally violate the law. Uh, so, so that has happened in some cases. But but it's hard, you know. If if you're in the category that has not been registered, the norm is, you know, you're not going to get these benefits. So I'm curious, when the two of you are at these public hearings, do you actually hear people making arguments that women should have to register for the draft to possibly be drafted? And and I have a third point for our comment I want to get to, too. But to answer that question, I mean, oddly, yes. Mm -hmm. You know, there is this, it's been framed. I mean, people have, through this process, people have focused on the commission process. People have focused on the issue of women, you know, 
being added to the registration requirement as kind of the primary issue. Although the commission's mandate is broader than that, that's really where the focus has been. And it's been framed largely as conservative religious groups oppose women being added and, um, you know, more uh, liberal people uh, support it because of, you know, equality of women. Mm -hmm. So we reject that, of course, because this is about coercion. This is about, you know, going against our, our, our free and democratic society by having any kind of um, compulsion or any kind of risk of compulsory service, um, especially one that requires people to kill, uh, to take another human life. But when the NDAA process was going on, the process that set up this commission, you know, we found ourselves with some strange bedfellows, right? I mean, sure, sure. A very conservative, very, you know, misogynist, if you ask me. I mean, some of the rhetoric that was being bantered around about why, you know, about why women should not be included in the draft requirement was very sexist. But then on the other side, you have the, you know, that was kind of the Republican side, but they were opposed to it, you know, so they were kind of our allies in the end, in the, in the outcome area. But then the Democrats were saying, no, no, this is important. This is important for women's equality. And I have an elder friend who worked on the Equal Rights Amendment back in the 1970s. And she says that she was be, she would be, you know, lobbying um, members of Congress and they would say, you can have equal rights, little lady, as soon as you're able to be drafted. So this goes way back. This has its roots mm-hmm. way back, you know, that this, that this prejudice. Sure. We all, it's also culturally accepted that, you know, how many times in your life do you hear, oh, Trump, Trump insults somebody, for example, and, the, and they say, well, he's a veteran. He's a combat veteran or she's a combat veteran who Trump just insulted, you know? Sure. Well, how come we have decided Decided in our culture that the pathway to value is through, you know, tacit or complicit support for militarism. You know, so I think we have to reject that too. Someone doesn't gain equality. Someone doesn't gain, you know, human dignity because of their willingness to, um, you know, to, to participate in, in attacks on dignity. Exactly. That's- and certainly, yeah, so, so we reject that and we've tried, you know, to do our best to spread that message that this, that if you want equality, quality for all and the registration requirement. Maria, Maria, I really want to let you get to your third point, And I know our listeners want to hear it. I just, I need to say this now. I, the idea when we're talking about, you know, national defense authorization act and, and military funding and our foreign policy, that, that the United States is going to be concerned about women's rights and, and women's equality uh, in this case is as ridiculous to me as it as it was that women's rights was the reason that we went into Afghanistan when we're not going to say anything about it from our State Department with, with Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, when we're talking, when I think about uh, respect for, for individual human rights and, and, and disenfranchised uh, groups whose whose humanity and their dignity has in whole or in part been denied. We're talking about race and, and, and gender and, and ageism and, and ableism and all these things. I, I look at what's humanizing, what's dehumanizing, and, and how we can be rehumanizing. You know, our military is used as a tool of our foreign policy that is often about political and economic gain over other nations and dominating them and using them for our own interests. And it it wouldn't be right, uh, Jason Jones pointed out, we wouldn't accept uh, one human being just 
using other people for their own interest and denying their humanity. Everybody sees that as wrong, but it's it's normal for governments to do. For me, it's just odd for women who have historically been been denied rights, um, denied freedoms, denied the right to property. Heck, even women, in many places and times, being considered property of their of their fathers and husbands. It's it's ridiculous to me to think about drafting them as part of equality. It's it's like in 1850 if I said, you know, um, uh, let's uh, let's have some progress here. Let's let's change the the Louisiana law based on Napoleonic code, um, and let's now allow married women to own slaves as property separate from the property of their husbands. Wouldn't that be progress if married women could have property separate from their husbands? It's just why why do we want women? to be equally dehumanizing other groups of people when women have been dehumanized for eons. That's ridiculous. I just I just had to say that. And now, Maria, I'm going to shut up uh, and let you get to your third point. Before we get to that, while we're still on this women issue, I mean, I think it's important to point out that, you know, the, the, the women's movement has been historically largely anti-war. I mean, the, the, the women who fought for suffrage in the U.S. way back 100 years ago were the same women who were supporting conscientious objectors uh, dur- during World War One. That is important to point out, Bill. I think what else might be important, perhaps, is Maria's third point. Maria, could we hear your third point? Third point. <laughs> yeah, okay. So just to recap, so what we're asking people to do, first point, end draft registration once and for all. Second point, overturn the federal and state penalties that people are living under and do not enforce them any further. And number three, because part of the commission's mandate is also to look at national service and the question of whether or not we should have a mandatory national service program or or how can we inspire people to serve their country in, in a variety of different ways. And so we are, uh, we are, def- we are you know, definitely asking people to um, have service remain voluntary. We want the commission not to recommend mandatory service of any kind, not military and not civilian service. And that service is something that someone does, you know, from the heart because of a a motivation to do so. Certainly we'd love to see civilian service incentivized. You know, um, what we see in our history is that military service is always incentivized to a greater extent, right? There's sure hundreds and and hundreds of more applications to the Peace Corps than the Peace Corps can fill because of their budget. Uh, AmeriCorps, same thing, grossly Mm -hmm. underfunded. You know, so let's incentivize service, but let's keep it voluntary. There is nothing democratic about compulsory service of any kind. That's right. You know, I would I would love to see. As a matter of fact, as a as a veteran, I thank all kinds of of people who are not veterans who are actually doing service. Thank you for your service. But what I don't want to do is to say to someone, "Thank you for your coercion. Thank you for your cooperation with coerciveness." So, Maria, what else do we need to know, and and what else can we do? So. Those three points that we just talked about, and this is like the last call for comments, and we're working with this network of those other groups that I mentioned, but also CCW, the Center on Conscience and War, with our particular focus on conscientious objection, um, we also have a, a couple of other points. You know, those are the three ones that we have consensus on, but, but we as CCW also think it's important for people to know that 
if the commission decides not to recommend ending selective service, part of the commission's mandate is also to look at changes the selective service system may require, you know, going into the modern future. And if they do indeed decide to maintain, you know, recommend maintaining the system and Congress does maintain the system, we believe that it is very important that, um, conscientious objectors have an opportunity to self-identify at the time of registration. Mm-hmm. You know, we still want to see the penalties ended. If they're going to enforce a law, they need to enforce it through the courts with due process, just like, you know, our system of democracy and, and um, you know, our constitutional system of justice requires. Uh, but also, we believe that um, it's very important that somebody has, you know, has the opportunity to make their beliefs known at the time of registration. So they're calling it like a checkoff box, a CO checkoff box. So when you register, you register as a conscientious objector. That is so important, Maria. If if we do continue with this draft of the Selective Service, we need that box. Like you say, if we're a democracy, particularly if we're a democratic republic where we respect and protect individual freedoms and rights for religion and conscience, then we need a way for these COs to identify themselves and a process for them to be recognized uh, with a conscious objective status in case of a draft it's it's woefully negligent not to do that it's also i believe woefully inconsistent there have been some court cases on freedom of religion in this decade and maria we've talked about this i know that you and i disagree on some of the decisions yet either way it's inconsistent we've seen courts federal courts the supreme court uphold religious freedom for a cake decorating artist so he cannot be forced to create a message or artwork on a cake for a gay wedding. We have seen in the case of Hobby Lobby, the Supreme Court uh, uphold their right that they do not have to provide uh, a plan that includes contraceptive for their employees in health benefits. Regardless of what you think about those decisions, if we're going to uphold freedom of religion and conscience in those areas we've got to do it in the area of killing other human beings if we really hold life as sacred and dignity as inviolable we have to do this especially i think for listeners who like me are pro-life if we're going to take a stand to uphold the freedom of religion and conscience of medical professionals to not participate in an abortion, then we should also stand for that freedom and right for people who don't want to participate in war. These are both issues of killing human beings. And I know some of you are jumping to, well, abortion is innocent victims and it's always intrinsically evil and war is sometimes justified because it's defense. Listen, on this episode, we're not actually talking about being for war or for unjust war or for nonviolence. And on this podcast, we're not going to get into being for or against abortion. Uh, what What we're talking about is being for the freedom of religion and conscience. We're talking about restricting the government from violating those freedoms. And when it comes to 
military service and conscious objection, the, the United States military actually already recognizes this right, not in law, but in military policy. So uh, an active duty troop uh, who has a change in their conscience or religious beliefs can uh, show proof of sincere and deeply held belief and go through a, a whole big process to be granted official government recognized, military recognized conscious objective status. It doesn't exist in the civilian world for someone who's not in the military that might need to register for the draft or selective service, and there's no way to document it. So I, I agree, Maria, this is so important that we have this if we keep selective service. And I'm sure the two of you have done the same thing we do as peace activists in Austin, particularly with young people, if there's someone who uh, knows they would not participate in war, then and there's no way to document it, we tell them, look, keep a file. Document the times you've, you've spoken at a peace rally, you've attended a peace training or a nonviolence training, you've written a paper. Just document that so at least you have that should a draft ever happen, you can show it to a draft board. Right. That's right. There's no official way to do it in the time of a draft. In the event of a draft, Selective Service will engage their process of, of you know, having draft boards evaluate individual CO claims. But at the time of registration, no, they currently do not take registrations as conscientious objectors. So there are, yeah, those little strategic ways that we advise young people to, to document their claim. But, you know, those cases you just mentioned, you know, contraception, um, abortion, uh, you know, Cakes. for marriage, you know, for marriages, things like that. People are able now, now these days to just simply declare themselves a conscientious objector in those realms. And there's no question about it, right? But there's no skeptical review. Hobby Lobby is the big case we think of with the healthcare, you know, contraceptive plans and the healthcare program. Um, you know, there's no skeptical review. Hobby Lobby was able to, is able to do that because they simply said, these are our beliefs. There was no skeptical review of their investments, you know, which independent people have done. And their independent reviews of Hobby Lobby's investments actually show that they're invested in companies that develop different types of contraceptions, including those to which they say they're opposed, a class called abortifacients, right? So they're making money off of these things, yet refusing for what they say are religious beliefs to provide such, you know, such um, access to their employees. If you, so, so no skeptical review, they just get to say they're conscientious right. objectors and the law backs them up. If you oppose war, you have to jump through, you know, many, many layers of skeptical review. So this yes. would sort of, you know, this would sort of even that playing field, allowing someone to self-identify as a conscientious objector will help level that playing field just a little bit and, and allow, you know, people who oppose war to get the same kind of recognition and respect as people who oppose others taking contraception. Well, and there are certainly listeners to this podcast that are going to be on multiple sides of that issue. <laughs> and what I want to say is that we're focused really on the freedom of conscience. So, so we're not talking about telling people they can't get contraception. We're talking about the freedom not to have to pay for someone else's if it's violating your conscience or your religion. And of course, there is an inconsistency with the lack of skeptical review in these civilian situations and the demand for it in the military. 
I'm going to wrap up this episode and we'll have you guys back for another one where we'll actually discuss the rigorous process that one goes through and the issues around obtaining conscientious objector status while in the United States military. But I just want to let folks know, if you look down in this episode description, you will see some links uh, that you can go to to contact this commission. Please do it before uh, 11.59 p.m. on New Year's Eve, January, December 31st. And um, and remember, we want them to, there's four points here, we want to uh, end the draft registration uh, and the selective service. Uh, we want to end all of the extrajudicial penalties for not being registered. And we want to make sure that there is no compulsory service, that service will be voluntary and it can be incentivized. That would be great. And then lastly, if the selective service and draft registration continues, then we want to make sure that there is a provision for conscious objectors to document that they are such at the time they're forced to register. So look for that, those links. And thank you so much for joining us. And remember, choose peace, choose justice, and Life that we might live, choose peace that we might see a tomorrow. Let justice roll, roll like a river, flow like a river down.